Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Your faith should be strengthened. Second Peter chapter 3, in our inspired Bibles, preserved to us by the providence of God. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, scoffers will rise in the last days, walking after their own lusts, and they'll say, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." Amen and amen. Amen. They say, where is the promise of His coming? I could tell you a story of the church of God of the Old Testament chased by all of its enemies into a valley surrounded by mountains and the enemy has them completely surrounded and is enclosing in upon them. And they have word that David is coming with his mighty men, his Gittites, his Pelethites, his Cherethites, that he's coming to rescue you. And they could wait. And there would be those unbelievers among them, like there have always been unbelievers in the church of Jesus Christ, like when they stood on the edge of Jordan and could have taken the land of Canaan. The nation rose up against the two spies on behalf of the ten spies, and would not take the land. And there would be those that say, David isn't coming. And then you would see David crest a hill with his Gittites, Pelethites, Cherethites, and all the mighty men of Israel, and work a great victory and save the church of the Old Testament. I have a better story to tell you. That when the thousand years shall be finished, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and he shall go forth and deceive the nations one more time. He has a little season and in that little season he will gather together all the enemies of God and the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ, the enemies of our gospel and they will go up on the breadth of the earth and encompass the camp of the saints about. And do you know what comes next? Fire comes down from heaven because there's a man on a white horse And He's the Son of David. He's the Word of God. He's the Lord of glory. And He's coming. Where is the promise of His coming? It's in the Word of God. It's in writing. And we believe it. Go ahead and keep scoffing, scoffers. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And the heavens and the earth are kept in store. Verse 7, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition. That is the destruction of ungodly men. 
And beloved, we are told something about God's timing rule to comfort us, that though it doesn't come as fast as we might think it should have, or though they tell us His coming does not match the timing verses that they think they have, He is coming. And then He tells us why. He wants to burn them now. He is suffering, not because of us. He is suffering because He wants to burn the wicked. He's ready to burn the wicked. Their damnation is no longer slumbering, and their judgment is no longer lingering. He's just holding it back, holding it back for His elect to be saved. Brought to repentance. Lord, help us to believe these things and to rejoice in them and to look forward to His coming and to love His appearing. Oh, David's going to crest a hill. But it's not going to be the little weak shout of David who couldn't even keep himself warm at the end of his life. It's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ who has infinite power, upholds all things by the word of His power. By Him all things consist and He will tear them apart. He put them together. He can tear them apart with His word. And what a shout it will be. The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout. That is exciting. Do you think he's afraid? You know, David would crest the hill, and there might be a little fear in David. There's no fear in the son of David. There's total anticipation of complete victory, 100%. There isn't a chance of him losing, and he's coming for us. And the Word of God has laid it out in so many different places in the New Testament and the Old for us to know that he's coming, and to love it, and to look forward to it. We enjoy going to see a fireworks display. Why? Those little tiny firecrackers? Or we go online and we watch some videos of thermonuclear detonation and testing. And we're impressed. Oh, brethren, he shall ascend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel. Michael, the archangel will be released. You have no idea what he can do to this world. And the trump of God shall sound. When Moses heard the trump of God at Mount Sinai, which is less in glory than the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it waxed louder and louder and louder. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that Moses himself quaked. Quaked. Moses. He had met with God 40 years earlier. 80 years earlier. He quaked 40 years earlier on the backside of the desert when the Lord Jehovah appeared to him and gave him his name of I am that I am in the burning bush. Oh, we have these verses to rejoice in them, brethren, and look forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It ought to change our lives. We ought to have such anticipation of seeing him that we love him and embrace him and are looking forward to him. And, and we're able to say with the apostle that closes out the whole Bible, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we should say that with confident expectation and and true enthusiasm and excitement for it. But you know, the world just pulls us down and distracts us and keeps us from thinking about that. But He's going to burn up everything. That's another reason that we should just not care about this. He's going to burn up your house. I'm sorry. And insurance isn't going to pay. He's going to burn your house up. He's going to burn your car up. He's going to burn everything up. Your garden, your kitty cat, everything's going to burn up. What else are you excited about? Your new tool shed. He's going to burn it up. Your business. He's going to burn up. He's coming. Oh, what a day it will be. If we, you know, 
when I describe the Philistines and the Hittites and the Amorites surrounding some hills and we're all down in there huddled as a little army of Israelites, the church of God of the Old Testament, and David has said, I will be there. It, it, it moves us. It's emotional. It gets our attention that when David crests that hill, we will rejoice and be glad and the victory will be impressive. But this is so much more. Right. It's the Lord Jesus Christ coming. And he tells us page after page. That's why we had the passages read that we had. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Did you hear Brother Jeff's passage about the consolation and the hope that we ought to have? Wherefore, comfort one another with these things. In both passages. This is our hope. We can go out and fight our battles tomorrow, as Brother Zach mentioned, because we have ultimate and total and complete victory. One word shall fell them. What word is it? I don't know. It doesn't matter. As long as Jesus Christ pronounces it, it carries with it untold power. One little word shall fell them. The Word of God and the spoken Word coming out of the Word of God will destroy the universe as we know it. And He'll change it. He'll just fold fold the whole thing up. When you watch a thermonuclear explosion and you you see the atmosphere and the ground, if they put it underground a little ways, you just see the whole ground rising up and exploding in the power. Wait till he unfolds the whole thing up. Unbelievable. The, the, the thousands and millions of light years of distance that are between all the heavenly elements. Uh, we'll get to the word elements in a few minutes uh, in the next service. The elements, they're going to melt with fervent heat. He says so a couple of times. The elements are an, an older English word describing the heavenly bodies. We don't use the word anymore for that. You know, we think of the word elements in all kinds of different ways, like oxygen, hydrogen, and lithium. And that's one way to think of the elements. But the word elements, when you're talking about heavens and you're not talking about the earth, and there are elements up there. There's elements of hydrogen in the sun. There's elements of oxygen in the moon. And there's elements up there of that sort. But the word elements is also, in English, means the heavenly bodies that are up there when he says he's going to destroy and melt the universe. You say Jupiter's too big for him. He can't even see Jupiter. It's too small. Right. Oh, our Lord's coming. Yes. And He's coming for us. Yes. You know, one of my favorite words has become nevertheless in verse 13. Nevertheless, I'm telling you about all this fire and burning and destruction and enfolding upon itself and imploding and explosion. But verse 13 says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise are looking for a new heavens and a new earth. The fire isn't going to touch us. His judgment isn't going to touch us. The perdition isn't going to touch us. He's not going to judge us. He's coming to save us. Okay, Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, that is the material and physical and geological universe, by the same word are kept in store. That is the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, And His spoken word keeps them in store. He upholds them by the word of His power, reserved unto fire. They have a reservation made for them. This earth has a hot future. You know, my brother-in-law once told me that when I had my Jaguar. He said that, you know, pastor, you know, brother, that car has a hot future. And it does have a hot future. Everything we know has a hot future. And we want to be considering those things that they are reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There is a day coming. Look back at chapter 2, where it says in verse 9, The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation, and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment 
to be punished. Second Peter 2.9. Notice again, I'll read it to you. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. God knows how to get us all out before it falls and He knows how to keep them reserved so that they all get it. They all get punished. No one's going to be punished that shouldn't be and no one's going to be saved that shouldn't be. The elect will be saved and the reprobates will be punished. We all deserve to be punished, but God will save us because it seemed good in His sight. But it's called the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 10 that in the day of judgment it will go better for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than those cities that had Him visit them and they did not repent at the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says it will be easier for all those Sodomites of the city of Sodom and the Sodomites of Gomorrah and the Sodomites of the other cities of the plain than it will be for those cities that saw His miracles and heard Him preach. But notice He's always he's referring often Matthew 10 and verse 15 Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment. There's a day coming. Do you realize how twisted we are? How how depraved we are? And how distracted we are? That if this were Hiroshima or Nagasaki of World War II, 1945, and an announcement was being made that secret information had been obtained from the U.S. Air Force that they were about to drop a unique bomb that had been tested in our western deserts for the last couple of years, I think you might go to the hills. But you know what? When this is preached, people just sit there and I wonder when he's going to finish. I wonder when we're going to be able to get out of here. Brethren, we have it in writing from the God who knows all things. And for someone that says, well, nothing like that has ever happened before, wrong. Verses 5 and 6 say that there was a worldwide flood. And I sent you an article this week, thank you, Brother Jim, that showed that under the crust of the earth, there's enough water down there to fill our oceans three times over. That by itself would get near the top of Mount Everest, let alone rain that had never fallen before, because the firmament, or heaven as it's called in Genesis chapter 1, separated the water that was under, the, that was above the firmament from the water in the oceans that was below the firmament. So the, the Bible, the, the Bible tells us that a lot of, there was a lot of water above the heavens, and there was a lot of water under the heavens, and the Lord opened up the fountains of the deep. You say, but that was 400 miles down. Do you think he could reach that? Come on. If he opened up the fountains of the deep, he can reach down and pop water. And it covered the mountains, and he's going to burn the place up next. And the scoffers are ringing in your ears. Because we're all scoffers at heart. Do you know that? We're all scoffers at heart. Right. He's not going to come in time. He's not going to come in time. David, over the hill. He's not going to come in time. Jesus, from heaven to deliver us. He's not going to come in time. He's going to come at the appointed time. And the only reason he's putting up with the wicked right now is for the benefit of his elect family. Matthew 10.15 says the day of judgment. Matthew chapter 11, verse 22. And thou Capernaum... Uh, but I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment. There it is again, Matthew 11 and verse 22, verse 24. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee, that is Capernaum. It says in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. 
the day of judgment. It's spoken of throughout the Bible. It's right here in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Because the earth is reserved to this day of judgment. It has an appointment made for it. And no one can stop it. And they worry about some little comet. They worry about sunspots. They worry about sun flare-ups. They worry about this and they worry about that. It might interrupt the internet for five seconds. There's going to be an interruption. It's going to be an interruption for eternity. It's going to explode this place. This is the truth of God's Word. I am not William Branham telling you that I'm Elijah the prophet. And the coming of the Lord is going to be in 1984. I'm not the Jehovah's Witnesses with all their made-up comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know when it's coming because Jesus wants us to know that it's going to come like a thief in the night. Thieves don't announce, them, announce themselves. They don't text you and say in 30 minutes, I'm going to bust through your downstairs basement door and take over your house. But the Lord's come and told us all these things in writing. And we believe. And we want to believe more and want to encourage each other in these things. The day of judgment, the earth is reserved unto it. Okay, verse 8. But, beloved, when these scoffers start yapping their mouths, and saying it hasn't happened like he said it was going to happen, and it hasn't happened with the timing verses of the Bible, I want to spend a little bit more time on that today so that you appreciate why verse 8 is there. And because I may never pass this way again through Second Peter chapter 3, I want everyone to remember verse 8. When you run into a preterist and they start yapping about the day of Christ was at hand, it should have happened in the generation that was then reading those epistles, and that's how they will reason. It's called audience relevance, and I'm going to get to it in a minute. The Bible completely overthrows and demolishes their fantasies and their fallacies and their heresies. I want you to remember, verse 8, that in a context, a tight context, of the timing of the coming of the Lord according to His promise... There is a divine timing rule at play, and that is that one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You should not be thinking about time. He's in charge of the time. And you need to remember this verse, because the apostle, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, and I can't let you be ignorant of it. They're going to say more and more that he's never going to come. The world could get worse and worse, And they say, see, we're getting worse and worse. And there's no coming. There's no day of judgment. Listen, do you know how many people right now are preaching no hell? Do you know how much of the Christian world is preaching no hell? They are completely changing against the God of judgment. They're completely changing about this universe being in store for judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. They will be destroyed. They will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. And we want to believe it. We want to recognize how this passage works. There are three responses and arguments and refutations of the scoffers. The scoffers say he's not coming. There's three reasons given responding to them. One, he did come in the flood, and you seem to be ignoring that. Two, he has a different timing perspective than you have. And three, there's a reason for him delaying, because he's going to get all of us together in the family of God. That's against scoffers. Now against preterists, we can argue preterists, the three things that are a little tiny different. Preterists, they say everything happened in 70 AD. We go to verse 7 and know that verse 7 is describing the material and physical earth melting with fire because it is the physical and material earth in verses 5 and 6 and it is compared to the physical and material earth in verse 7. That will be destroyed and it wasn't destroyed in 70 AD. 
So the preterists that say every Bible prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. We're in the new heaven, the new earth, brother. Isn't this wonderful? We have three responses. One, Paul, Peter made very clear that he was dealing with the physical and material universe and that did not change in 70 AD. It changed in the flood. Everything that was a li- called a living substance and everything that had the breath of life in it was destroyed and perished off the earth. It doesn't say anything about the heavens. I want you to be very, I want you to notice very carefully in reading John Owen this past week on this passage. He did me so much good in my late teenage years about the death of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't, he doesn't have a clue in 2 Peter 3. And he gets confused in verses 5, 6, and 7 because he says nothing happened to the heavens in the flood. It doesn't say anything happened to the heavens in the flood. Right. Because nothing happened to the heavens in the flood. But something's going to happen to the heavens this time around. Right. It says in verse 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. See, it just mentions the heavens, that they were created. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world, right. not the heavens, that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Both the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. Beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. So those three things against the preterists. Number one, the material and physical earth did not change in 70 AD. Two, we are told that your timing texts are a joke. Three, there's a reason for it. He's got to get the whole family of God together. Are you trying to tell us that everybody that's been born since 70 AD, there's never, there's not been a child of God? Preterist, were you born since 70 AD? Three answers. Thank you, Lord, for your truth. Why, why would Peter write, be not ignorant of this one thing, unless it was crucial for you to remember this verse? The Lord's timing isn't our timing. There's no reason to believe that Jesus is going to take another thousand years because he has dated prophecies in the Bible that have run their course. Do you know who has to be alive when Jesus Christ returns? The man of sin. Paul said the mystery of iniquity is already working, but that man of sin is going to be around because he's going to be destroyed by the brightness of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Jeff read it to us. Didn't we read that in Daniel chapter 7? that the Son of Man will come before the Ancient of Days and cast the little horn into the burning flame? Do you you understand that? There's not another thousand years. Absolutely not. Because there's time prophecies in the Bible that are coming to an end. The man of sin was not given a great long period of, an, an undefinable period of time in which to work his craft. He would make war against the saints for 1260 years and prevail, and then he wouldn't. And Jesus is going to come back. He's being consumed right now. We all know that. Pope Frank goes around and talks like the fairy that he is about global warming and all the rest of the stuff. But he doesn't have the power that he once had. He can't make war against anything. He's got war in his own ranks. So, we're comfortable with 2,000 years. Very comfortable. We had to get a 1,260-year prophecy out of the way. Right. We had to get it out of the way. We're very comfortable with 2,000 years because that means it's only been a couple days since Jesus made the promise of His coming. And we believe that. You know, the Lord's given us little secret, little secret keys sometimes that unlock truth. Do you know that we know a bunch of them throughout the pages of the Bible? Little keys that unlock truth. I mean, what, 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 which ones do you want to think about for just a moment? I'm not, I've made a list here. But uh, do you like the fact that we know what parables were given for? 
so that we run into a parable that we can't really figure out very quickly. We don't believe what our Sunday school teacher told us, that it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning to make it easy for the common man, because we think we're pretty common, but sometimes we can't figure them out. Because a parable is a difficult saying, and it's to hide truth. But that's just a little key. There's a whole lot of them in the Bible. There's one right here in 2 Peter 3, 8, and this is the divine timing rule of God that one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So stop trying to time me. Beloved, just remember this little tiny secret. Don't let anybody move you. Don't let anybody scoff about my promised return. I will come. How about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 where it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. Isn't that a key to truth for us? We learned it the other way around. We learned that Jesus has to come first, then the man of sin. Unbelievable! You should see what C.I. Schofield does to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in his introduction to it. I can't stand that man and the damage he's done to conservative Christians for the last 150 years with his idiotic Jewish fables that he created and made up like tearing Second Thessalonians 2, the first three verses, to shreds because he has to, because it ruins them. But you know what the Bible told us? Let no man deceive you by any means, including if he puts his notes on the pages of the Bible and names the Bible after himself and then gets it copyrighted by Oxford University Press. How about Second Peter 1.20? knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. These little keys that we use, you know, we make that our number one rule of Bible study because God's given us these keys for truth, and I'm mentioning just a few of them because 3.8 is one of them. 2 Peter 3.8 is one of them. Thank you, Lord, for it. Do you know that the Bible says that God will reveal His secrets to His servants that love Him? Do you know that God came down and was walking along with two of His angels, and Abraham was with them, and He said, you know what? Should I keep should I keep from Abraham the thing that I'm about to do? I, I, I don't want to keep that from Abraham. Are you familiar with this conversation? Right. I don't want to keep this from Abraham. So I'm going to go ahead and tell him, Abraham, I'm going to burn up the cities of the plain. Their cry has come up before me. They're exceeding wicked, and I've got to burn them up. But I'm going to tell you because I know that you're a faithful man, and you'll command your household. And we know verse 19, but it's verse 18 where it says the secret. I'm not going to keep this from Abraham. Psalm 25 tells us that for those that fear him, God will show them his secret. Amen. and reveal to them His salvation. We want to humble ourselves before the living God. Heavenly Father, for every secret that You've shown us thus far, we thank You and bless You and praise You. And what we are missing that would unlock more of the Scriptures, show it to us. And Heavenly Father, will give You all the honor and the glory. We are Your babes. We do not know how to go out or to come in. Give us a wise and understanding heart that we might rightly divide the Scriptures. In Jesus' name and for His honor and glory. Amen. Jesus is right on schedule. Just in case you didn't know it. He's right on schedule. Preterists are willfully ignorant, and that's their choice. Preterists mock 3.8. I gave you some of their favorite texts last week, didn't I? At hand, ready, quick, speedy, all that kind of stuff. They get all worked up over it. Um, I gave you those. If you want to see a full-blown refutation of their timing text, then you can go and find that in the outline called Preterism on our website. But the Apostle Paul said the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ was not at hand in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Did, were you following that when he said, it is not at hand? Don't be troubled. Don't be alarmed. Don't be fearful. Don't be altering your lives right now because the day of Christ and, and our gathering together unto Him is not at hand. 
Because there's two big events that have to happen first. That's a great apostasy or falling away from apostolic truth and the the doctrine of the gospel. And the man of sin has to be revealed, which didn't take place for several hundred years. The mystery of iniquity was working because Satan was in the world doing his thing. And there were already antichrists in the world, according to 1 John. But the, the, the man of sin hadn't been revealed yet. The bishop of Rome taking the authority over the Western Roman Empire, the Latin Empire, and making himself the head of the Holy Roman Empire. Thank you, Lord. Okay, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I, this is a little exercise in how we refute preterists. And I'm sorry if you haven't run into one yet. You might. And when you're reading the Bible, it's going to help you one way or another because this is just letting the Bible help us interpret it. The preterists say that uh, any time that you find the words at hand, quick, speedy, about to happen, about to come to pass, that that's got to be, I mean, it's got to be tomorrow. It's got to be next week. It's all got to be before by 70 A.D. It can't be after that because the words just wouldn't make sense and the Bible wouldn't make sense. Well, that's cute. If we're as ignorant as you are and rebellious as you are against what the Bible tells us, and I've given you these before, not last Sunday and not the Sunday before, but back in 2012, I'm just going to give you a few. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 are a prophecy. I call Deuteronomy 4.26, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land, whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall soon utterly perish. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. Verse 26 says soon, and verse 26 says shall not prolong. In the New Testament, the preterists would take words like that and say, see, it's got to happen before 70 A.D. It's got to happen in their lifetimes because it's using the second person. Pronouns. You and ye. Do you know when this happened? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. The Assyrian dispersion of the ten tribes was 800 years away. The Babylonian dispersion was a 1,000 years away. And the Roman, which they use this for because preterists, remember, want to turn every passage in the Bible to a 70 A.D. passage, was 1,500 years away. But it used soon and shall not be prolonged. It was prolonged a long time because, remember, a 1,000 years is as one day. Oh, yes, we have our Bible answers for them. And so we don't get alarmed by soon. We don't get alarmed by not prolonged. Look at chapter 32. Same book, Deuteronomy 32. 32, 35. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. Oh, we've got the at hand prophecy. And the things that shall come upon them make haste. 1,500 years. The destruction of the Jewish nation and the scattering of the holy people by the Roman armies. They use this for that. We should most have 1,500 years at hand. Do we have an answer? Second Peter 3.8 is our answer. And we're just showing these illustrations. Look at Isaiah 13. Did you read it last night? I hope you did. Isaiah 13. It's one of my favorite illustrations of prophetic similitudes. C.I. Schofield, number one rule of interpreting Bible prophecy. 
All prophecies are to be taken literally. First rule, most important rule, they're literal. Hosea 12.10, God told us, my prophets used similitudes. That's not literal. That's sign language. That's metaphorical representations of things. That's figurative language. We love Hosea 12.10. We have rules of interpretation that the Lord has shown us. They're little keys. Hosea 12.10 is a little key of knowledge for interpreting prophecy because it says my prophets use similitudes. I remember the first time I heard that. I was around 20 years of age. I could have vaulted this pulpit. It was wonderful. Because all of a sudden, his rule is what's getting him in heresy. The Bible rule is the opposite. My prophets did not speak literally. So when we read about the sun moving away and the moon not giving its its light and the constellations of heaven no longer giving their light, we don't think the Big Dipper is going to go out. We think there's going to be a big political change on earth. Everything that seems established on earth is going to be overthrown. Because cataclysmic language for events in the heavens are to describe cataclysmic events in the political realm. You remember when Joseph came to his brethren and said, I had a vision that there were a bunch of stars and a sun and a moon and they bowed down to me. Well, were sons... What did that mean? Mom and step and, and stepmoms... I mean, dad and stepmoms and brothers are going to bow down to me. There's going to be a big change. Right. Should... Should we go back and look through some astronomical records to see if something happened with the stars in the days of Joseph? No. No. Isaiah 13. The first four words tell you what the chapter's about. The burden of Babylon. Even though verse 6 calls it the day of the Lord. Even though, you know, it says the day of the Lord in verse 9. Even though it says... In verse 10, the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened, the moon shall not cause her light to shine. Verse 11, though it says, I will punish the world, you know, for God so loves the world, and I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Verse 13, I will shake the heavens and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts. Now, if you were reading so far, you would think this has got to be the second coming. But it's not. It's just an event that took place in 457 B.C. when Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian took the city of Babylon in one night. Because it tells us that in verse 17. It says, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, that is the Babylonians, because the chapter is the burden of Babylon. And it says in verse 19 in Babylon, that city over there in Iraq, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans, excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in, and so forth. Isaiah thirteen six said, Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It didn't happen for 200 years. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And then it says at the end, it shall never be inhabited. And it's the last words of the chapter are, Her days shall not be prolonged, but the city remained for a long time. Because didn't Peter write in First Peter chapter 5 and verse 13 that he was writing from Babylon? So Babylon was still around 500 years later. Now it's just a pile of mounds today, just like these last three verses describe it. 
What I'm doing right now is showing you that in the Bible, when you find words like at hand, you've got to remember 2 Peter 3.8. That's what I'm doing. Because when an apostle tells us, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, I am going to spend time on it so that you are never ignorant of this one thing, that God's timing is not our timing. That what is a thousand years to us could just be a day to him. So when he says at hand, we should keep that in mind. But we have more than that. He's been comforting to us by giving us 2 Thessalonians 2 and telling us, It's not at hand. Then how can it be at hand and not at hand? It depends on whose perspective you're looking at it from. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at it from our perspective, it's not at hand. That's why they could relax. From his at hand, it was only a day or two away. Doesn't bother me a bit. You know why I like stuff like that? Because those that don't want to believe God's methods of interpretation can trip right over them and hang themselves. Haggai chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in the Bible says, yet it is a little while, 400 years. What do preterists do with stuff like this? Uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. God does not operate by our timetables. God does not view time the way we view time. You can't even comprehend how God exists in time. Because God is eternal, how did He ever get to today? As soon as I ask myself that question, there's smoke inside me. It wants to come out my ears, my nose, and my eyes. How did God ever get to today because He's eternal? I don't know. How can something not have a beginning? Oh, Because it just always exists. Wait a minute. It always existed. How would it get to now? Anyway. Because Romans chapter 8 is so beautiful. Watch this. It says in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Moreover them, moreover whom he did predestinate. Romans 8, 30, Moreover whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What tense does he use for glorified? Past tense. Has anyone been glorified yet except Jesus Christ? No. How long of a time is the past tense? Is it at hand? Is it even come quickly, Lord Jesus? Is it things which must shortly come to pass? Or is the past tense something that's already been done? But that is how God speaks of future events. He puts it in the past tense. Does He tell us in the book of Romans how He can do that? Does He tell us that He can operate above verb tenses? Is it Romans chapter 4 that he is able to call those things which be not as though they were? (laughs) When he told Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations. And Abraham didn't have any sons to give him many nations. But I have made thee a father of many nations. Oh, preterist. I'm giving giving you little, little derringers to have in your pocket, but they're not very little. You pull it out and you find out when you pull the trigger that it's a 66 Magnum. Right. Because it's based on the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon, he asked preterists. Charles Spurgeon was 150 years ago, 1875, height of his ministry. Charles Spurgeon asked preterists, Are you going to cut me out of Isaiah 53? Because surely he hath borne our griefs. Hath borne. 
Oh, sweet. He says, you're going to cut me out of Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born. Perfect tense of Jesus Christ being born. We want to submit to God's terminology. And sometimes he can declare prophecies in the past tense, perfect tense, any tense he wants to, because he's going to bring those things to pass in his timing. A life of 70 or 80 years is a long time to us, but various metaphors in the Bible tell us it's very short. It's like a hand's breadth. It, it's like a, it's like a, the post delivering mail. It's like the Pony Express. It's like shadows and the way they lengthen in the afternoon. All those things are telling us that God views time differently than we do. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Peter used Psalm 90 in verse 4 for that expression because it is first stated there. Let's go to verse 9, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Scoffers say He's slacking, but He is not slack. The promise is the promise of His coming. The, the epistles of Peter, and there's eight chapters in them, five in the first one, three in the second one, they're about His second coming. We started off in 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, who hath begotten us again unto it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And as we trace through First Peter and then Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the issue. This is the issue of 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter confirming these Jews scattered in Asia Minor of Paul's doctrine, because he's going to tell you in just a few verses that Paul already wrote you about these things, and in all his epistles he spoke of these things. And Peter's confer confirming this is the truth, and don't let any scoffers tell you otherwise. Scoffers are going to rise in the last days, but Jesus is coming on time. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. He has a timing rule that changes our understanding of words and verb tenses. Like we just learned by looking at Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 and seeing the past tense there. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Jesus Christ promised to return and He will be on time. Our God and Son, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, do not slumber or sleep. You may count on the coming of Christ more than any other future event that you think is going to happen in your life. The Bible says, we should say about anything that we're going to do, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. He just appears to be coming slower than you thought because you don't understand terminology according to the rule of verse 8. God in long-suffering is delaying the day of judgment for His elect to repent. For until each and every one has been regenerated and repented, He cannot and will not come, as I told you last Lord's Day. This text is glorious in the reason it gives. If you're going through this and you're getting those three and you're really wanting to lay hold of those three, you can answer the scoffer by saying, there was an event like this before. Have you forgotten it? Two, he has a different view of time than we. Three, Look at the reason. He's doing it for the sake of His elect. He's doing it for usward. So that's just very comforting. 
Verse 8 is the rule of how he looks at things differently. And we want him to come. And we know that he wants to come. And we know that his wrath and his holiness burns against all the wicked. The devils knew it. Art thou come to torment us before the... They know there's a time for their torment. But he's holding it off by the explanation of 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. Scoffers count him slack. Preterists count him slack. Here's how a preterist counts him slack. You, Christian, that believe in the promises extending out past 70 AD, that does not match up with the choice of words that he gave us in the gospel of those things being at hand, shortly to come to pass, quickly, soon, ready. So you've turned him into a, you've turned him into a delayer. He's a slacker. He hasn't kept his word to come on time. Preterists do the same thing. And they're raising their ugly head. They're a small group of people, but they're very loud. If you go on the internet and look at their written documents or go on YouTube and look at some of their sermons and look at, they're just very loud and obnoxious. They think they've arrived at some new body of truth that overthrows 2,000 years of our brothers in the faith that were looking forward and comforting themselves at the stake when they were dying as martyrs that there was deliverance coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. They deny it all. But as long-suffering to usward, this phrase in the middle of the verse saves it from Arminian heretical twisting. Those that we meet that believe in Arminian form of salvation, that means that God wants to save everyone, sent Jesus Christ to pay for the sins of everyone, sends the Holy Spirit to convict everyone. And the only reason they're not saved is because they don't do what they're supposed to do. We deny that doctrine of salvation, believing that God has purposed who will be saved and who will not be saved according to the good pleasure of His own will, as the Bible says it in those terms, that He has vessels of mercy prepared for glory and He has vessels of wrath prepared for His judgment. And so we understand in this little expression, but is long-suffering to usward. That usward is so key. It's Peter describing himself along with his audience and it is setting the stage for the class of God's elect. Audience relevance. Usward. Peter and his hearers. Audience relevance. A buzzword of the preterist. Means that if Peter said usward, it had to happen while either Peter and they, well, let's get the word either out of there. Let's be honest with them. That Peter and his audience had to be alive. So guess what they get? 70 A.D., and they'll say that Peter and, and his audience were pretty much still alive. And they call it audience relevance. It's a preterist buzzword. That whenever you read the Bible, and they're using the first person, us word is first person, or second person, you. Remember Deuteronomy 4? Moses was using the second person, and it was 1,500 years away. They call it audience relevance. A buzzword where the first and second person pronouns are used for the Lord's coming or related events, they say it had to have happened during their lifetimes. Go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and let's see what Zach read to us earlier today. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him. Let's get 16. For the Lord Himself shall ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain. See that we? Peter's putting himself in there with his audience of the Thessalonians. Then we 
which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And they call that audience relevance, meaning that this coming, whatever coming is under consideration, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, had to have occurred while Paul and the Thessalonians were alive. That's what they say. Now Paul knew that he wasn't going to be alive because he said so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, that the, be not deceived by any means, for that day shall not come, except that apostasy and the little horn develop out of the decaying Roman Empire, which is all understood by them from Daniel chapter 7, would take hundreds of years to accomplish. Paul knew he wasn't going to be alive. But he used that for a number of purposes of encouraging those saints living right then not to be discouraged by those church members that were out in the church cemetery. And he was, te- he was speaking about them as a class of believers, just like Peter is by using the word long-suffering to usward. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, where I can show you that Paul did not expect to be alive when Jesus came. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, And God hath both raised up the Lord, God the Father has raised up the Lord Jesus Christ, and will also raise up us by His own power. But over there in 1 Thessalonians, Paul said, We which are alive and remain. Here he says, We won't be raised from the dead. I mean, we will be raised from the dead, which means we won't be there when Jesus Christ comes back. Are you with me? And looking at these verses, 1 Corinthians 6.14, and will also raise up us by His own power. That means I know we're going to die. I'm going to be in a cemetery, and God's going to raise us up. So when we, when we combine those statements of Scripture, we understand that He's describing a class of God's elect, God's elect of the New Testament. Sometimes He's, he's referring to Himself, we, as the elect that are still alive when Jesus comes, will not precede, prevent, means precede, them when He comes, but the dead shall be raised first. I showed you examples. Here's what Joseph told his brethren in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 25. Genesis 50 and verse 25. Uh, Joseph had been down there about uh, 80 years, and he told his family this, God will surely visit you, Second person. God will surely visit you, and ye, second person, shall carry up my bones from hence. I want to give credit to Jonathan Edwards for this one. Let me read his paragraph. Against preterists. What did Joseph mean in Genesis chapter 50, verse 25? God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. When were Joseph's bones carried out of Egypt? with the exodus, generations and 130 years later, 150 years later, when and how did God visit those that were then living, referenced by that second person pronoun, you? How did God visit? When did God visit? Who carried up Joseph's bones? When did they carry up? He did not say, God shall visit your posterity, and they shall carry up my bones from hence. But though he did not, Joseph knew it would not happen in that generation because Joseph knew the prophecy of how long they had to be 430 years in total. 215 in Egypt had already been declared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Isaiah 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. Do you know when that was written? 700 B.C. Does that cut us out of Isaiah 53? Or is that first person pronoun we describing a company of God's elect? He's not willing that any should perish. You know, we, when it says that in this, 
at the end of verse 9, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, as I described them last Sunday as two candy sticks, candy canes that are given to Arminians because they don't read that middle clause. There's five clauses. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. That's one. As some men count slackness, that's two. Three, but is long-suffering to usward. Who are the usward? It's the class of God's elect because Peter has referenced his readers as being God's elect in chapter 1 and verse 2 when he starts out the whole eight chapters and he has referenced them as God's elect in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10 where he said to make their calling and their election sure. So he's described them as God's elect. So God has a promise for his elect that he wants, he doesn't want any of them to perish and he wants to bring all of them to repentance. And this is why the Arminian has no case in Second Peter chapter 3 because they never take the time to figure out to whom is this verse written? Right. To whom is this verse describing that God is not willing for them to perish? The any that God is not willing to perish must be limited to the usward in the context. It is preposterous to use this soundbite to say God's will is against any in hell. Then why did he create hell? And why did he create anyone that would end up in hell? Because it is his will. And that's why he says in Romans 9.22, what if God, willing, willing, everything about salvation is according to the good pleasure of his will. Romans chapter 9 says, He will have, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Do you know how many wills? That's the will of God in there. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Therefore it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. And he goes on to say that it's also his will to harden men like Pharaoh that he uses in context and quotes from the book of Exodus. It's preposterous to say that God is not willing for any to perish in some absolute sense of the term because he is most definitely willing. But he is not willing for any of his elect to perish. And he will save every single one of them. And he has guaranteed that. Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? They're all going to be saved. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, there's so much more here that we could go over very quickly. Let me... Oh, There are a number of reasons. When we look at this verse, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. We understand that that middle clause, but is long-suffering to usward. We understand that that controls the verse and tells us that the ones that God is not willing to perish are His elect and the ones He's going to bring to repentance are His elect. Now in this verse and sometimes in the past, I've never preached through it expositionally like I am now, but in the past I have explained this verse as having a practical perishing in, a, in, in the second half of the verse and I don't believe that anymore. I believe that this perishing should be used as what automatically comes out in the context. And what the context is, is verse 7 and verse 10 is the sandwich around it because verse 8 is sort of a parenthetical element of telling us that God has a special timing rule. But verse 7 is very clear that it is the day of judgment and perdition, destruction of ungodly men that is at hand. That, that's, that context is in verse 7, and verse 10 does not make any appeal of exhortation to us, but, but keeps going, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Beloved, there's a, God can look at a thousand years as one day, He can look at it as a day as a thousand years. He's not slack 
He's doing everything on schedule, but there's a reason that there's a delay, that there appears to be a delay to you, and that is he is saving all of his elect, usward, the class of God's elect, from perishing. And the first thing I would say in changing my position on using this verse is the context. And it's expositional preaching that sometimes takes your pastor to a different depth of weight of feeling the context mounting on me when I get to a verse. And when I'm reading down through this verse, we are talking about the destruction of the heavens and the earth and the day of judgment, the day of judgment and perdition, the destruction of ungodly men. We are talking about the final day. We're talking about hell. We're talking about being cast into the lake of fire. And so when we come to the word perish, immediately thereafter, that the Lord is not slack about this event taking place, but is long-suffering to usward, and we understand that He's talking about the elect, not willing that any of those elect should perish finally, should perish in hell, should perish in the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That's the first reason, and I have a I have a very long list of reasons, because when I change a position, I better have, what is the word? A tsunami of evidence to change a position on something that I've taught. I believe here that this is just a reference that God is going to save all of His elect, and not a single one of them will be caught in that terrible day of verse 7. They will not be caught in the terrible day of verse 10. He's going to get them all out. The tendency on our part is to look at that word repentance and let it drive our interpretation. But repentance should not scare us. It is an evangelical evidence of eternal life. And it's used that way in other places in the Bible. When the Bible says, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, do we get scared with that verse? No, we don't get scared with that verse. When the Bible says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, does that verse scare us? No, because we automatically know evidence, 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 and this is evidence. And repentance is declared in the New Testament to be an evidence of eternal life. Because when Peter had to go meet with the elders of the church at Jerusalem after meeting Cornelius in Acts 10, in Acts 11, Peter met with the elders of that church, and when he got done telling them what he saw in Cornelius and his family, they said, praise God, then God hath granted repentance to the Gentiles unto unto life. Because repentance is an evidence of eternal life. I've got 15 or 20 reasons as to why I changed, and most of you would not be interested in probably very many of them at all. But we do not need to fear a connection to eternal damnation in verse 7 or in verse 10 because God's going to deliver us. And the only reason that things are being held up is because He wants to save His entire elect family from perishing, not willing that any should perish. Who is the any? It's the usward. Who are the usward? They are the elect as a class described in verse 1, chapter, 1 Peter 1, 2, 2 Peter 1, 10. It's the class of God's elect. He will not allow a single one of them to perish in the lake of fire in final damnation but he's going to bring them all to repentance. And you say, but he doesn't bring them all to repentance. Yes, but if you apply that rule strictly to misinterpret this verse, you better apply it that way in every other place where a condition of evidence appears to be a condition of means. Because there's a there's a hundred of them. There's over a hundred of them. First and foremost... The preceding and following context is final day of wrath. I mean the context that is right around what is being discussed 
The Lord is going to come and burn this world up, but He's not going to come so fast that He doesn't save all of His elect. He will save all of them, and not one will perish. It is the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men that is the topic from verse 7. The word perish has already been used in verse 6. That the world being overflowed with water perished. Now what perished? Mount Everest didn't perish. The material, physical earth didn't perish. Anything that had the breath of life on it perished. But when we read about someone perishing in the Bible like the flood, where did their spirits go? What happened to them? They were sent to hell. And we're supposed to understand that because 1 Peter 3, 20, 18-20 has already explained where Peter described the spirits of those men in prison. He's already put them in hell. So that perishing there is more than dying. It's being dropped into hell. Peter's already mentioned that. And verse 7 is obviously including more than just being burned up on earth and ending our physical existence because it's called the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. It includes hell fire. The the word per God is long-suffering. God is not putting up with us. He's putting up with the wicked for our benefit to get us all saved. And that's an important distinction that could be chased. Because if you flip back just a couple of pages, it says, the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing. For 120 years, God had to show long-suffering. Was His long-suffering toward Noah and his family? No. His long-suffering was toward the wicked. And here, His long-suffering is not toward the elect, that they're disappointing Him on a daily basis, which we do. His long-suffering is He's suffering for a long time because He wants to burn the wicked up, but He's holding back on that because He's not going to lose a single one of the family of God that has been written in the book of life and will be saved. The will of God is most definitely the salvation of all elect without any perishing. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus the great shepherd in John chapter 10, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. The epistles generally use perish for hell and final damnation unless there is some contextual reason otherwise. So we go with that use of the word, especially because we have verse 7 here describing it as the great day of judgment. It doesn't say shame. You know, God's elect could be shamed at His coming, but He's not going to hold up His whole plan for the universe for one terminal generation only. If you make, if, if you make this practical like I used to make it practical, then you're describing only one terminal generation. And in this one terminal generation is God's will that none should perish. Is it sovereign or wishful thinking? If it's sovereign, then He's going to force repentance on everyone and there's no reason for exhortation in the rest of the chapter. If it's sovereign. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking. But I don't believe it's wishful thinking. It's the will of God to save all of His elect eternally. To deliver them from the lake of fire. Because you've got to think about that will. He's not willing that any should perish. Because He certainly is willing for us to be perished because it's called chastening in the Bible. The Corinthians perished. There were, there were, many, there were many already sleeping. There were many weak. There were many sick. God is willing for that. So what happens to His will? Is it sovereign or is it just His desire? And is He holding up the entire universe? But there's really only one... I'm asking that question. Is He really holding up the entire universe and what's going to play out by waiting for 
us to repent from our daily sins. I used to run it that way. I've run it 70 AD in the past. I've been messed up on this passage in the 31 years of my ministry, but I'm not, I don't feel messed up on it now, and I believe there's a substantial amount of evidence that teaches that this is just a statement that God is, the reason it's being held up is He's going to get everyone saved from that day of judgment in verse 7. The perishing is final perishing in the lake of fire. He's going to bring them to repentance, which in this particular case is just using repentance as a condition of evidence for God's elect. And it's various things in various places. It doesn't say that we're going to be ashamed. Um, you mean His return is resting on man's fickle performance rather than the will of God? I mean, it, there's, there's a lot of complications created if we, if we slow down and think about it very carefully. He has allowed many to perish practically in various senses before. Why the change with just one terminal generation? Because really this can, can only apply to the terminal generation. That means the last elect that are alive on earth, that he's going to want to recover them from their daily sins and problems and backslidings. Because he hasn't ever done that before. He lets us backslide. He chastens us. But he doesn't grant us repentance according to the sovereignty of his will. But there is something He does according to the sovereignty of His will. He will not let a single one of the elect perish. Finally, in the lake of fire, He'll bring them all to repentance and they'll all be saved with an everlasting salvation. The verse is not one of exhortation, but rather one of explaining God's delay. These people had not fallen. They were living right with pure minds. They had purified their minds. Paul was their apostle. Peter was not picking on these people as having a lot of problems like we can read in other epistles. He commends them and praises them. He says in verse uh, 12 that they are looking for and that they should be looking for in hasting. He says in verse 14 that they are looking for such things. Uh, they are, they're, a good, they're a good group of people because Paul was their apostle. If his will, is his will for none to perish sovereign or wishful? Is it, is it uh, the secret things of God or the revealed things? A practical sense turns it into just revealed things. Otherwise, if we make it His sovereign will, we end up in fatalism that He's going to force everyone in some terminal generation to repent on a practical level. And we haven't seen that anywhere else in the Bible in any other generation. But we have seen and we know that He will bring all of His elect to repentance where repentance is only used as an evidence of eternal life as the general rule for characterizing God's elect. There is an epoch here not a terminal generation or far less of just a few people at the last time needing to practically repent because there's an epoch. There's a thousand years or there's two thousand years because of verse 8 telling us this is a long period of time that's playing out for God to make sure that none of His elect perish. This is similar to Revelation 6, 9-11 through 11, which I have shared with you a couple of times in the last couple of weeks. You know, where the martyrs that are under the altar of God are asking God, how long? How long? And see, it's His sovereign will that He has written in His book those that are going that have to die for Him. Those that are going to die for Him. And He says, I can't wreck vengeance yet because you have some fellow brethren that are going to die for Me. And so I've got to wait for that to play out. Then we'll judge them. And so it's very similar to that here. We have to wait until all of the elect are saved and then I can come. So verse 8 is God's different view of time. Verse 9 is the reason. And the reason is grace and mercy. 
to get all of us saved. And verse 7 was that it will be the material heavens and earth that will be dissolved. And when we come back after our break, verses 10 through 14 will describe, repeating itself several, a couple of times, what's going to happen to that physical and material universe. And as a consequence, he's going to exhort those brethren, listen, if all these things are going to be burned up, let's not get wrapped up in the things of this life. Let's be looking for that Savior. Let's live godly lives, holy lives, peaceful lives, without spot and without blame. And that's the effect all of this should have on us. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming over the crest of the hill. He's going to arrive in His white horse and He's going to deliver us the camp of the saints from all the enemies of God and Satan that are going to be around us trying to destroy us. And as we read the things happening in our secular press around the world, there seems to be, you know, I'm not going to be a forecaster like the Jehovah's Witnesses or others, there seems to be a greater worldwide antagonism toward anything of a Creator God and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and a morality standard than there ever has been before. The the camp of the saints, they're not going to come with M1 Abrams. They're going to come with false doctrine to deceive us and to take us off of our love of Christ. But we are not going down. We are going to stand and fight like Zach exhorted us a little while ago. I thank you for your kind attention. I promise in the second service, to the best of my ability, we'll go through the five verses, 10 through 14, faster. For those of you that want to see more and see it written out and see cross-references and supporting documentation, it'll be in the website. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen. He's coming on time.